Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 48 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Jefferson Davis, Abraham Lincoln, George and Martha Washington, and many, many more all have statues, plaques, or historical markers erected to honor or call attention to their life. Many of these monuments and the controversial lives and history they represent have been debated before, but not anything like what we see and hear today. What role do monuments play in our culture today? How should governments in American cities, private citizens, and public institutions in these communities view the markers that represent a past which is sometimes said to be more myth than fact? We'll explore those questions today on Think Humanities with our guests, Patrick Lewis and Ann Twitty. As a scholar in residence at the Filson Society in Louisville, Lewis edits the peer-reviewed Ohio Valley History Journal and oversees the Scholarly Research Fellowship Program. He works closely with the program staff of the Filson to plan public lectures and with the collection staff to make archival holdings accessible to researchers. He directed the Civil War Governors of Kentucky Digital Documentary Edition at the Kentucky Historical Society. Patrick holds a PhD in history from the University of Kentucky and is the author of For Slavery and Union, Benjamin Buckner and Kentucky Loyalties in the Civil War. Ann Twitty is Associate Professor and Chair of the Undergraduate Committee at the University of Mississippi, where her research focuses on questions of 19th century American social and cultural history, including slavery and freedom. Her doctoral degree in history is from Princeton. She is the author of Before Dred Scott, Slavery and Legal Culture in the American Confluence, 1787 to 1857. And I would like to say to both of you, welcome and thanks for being on Think Humanities. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much. Let me begin this way and just ask you as historians, how are historians thinking about this moment in our time, in our history, and what role do monuments have in culture today? Patrick? Uh, First off, I think historians are kind of like the rest of the American public, trying to keep up with news as it evolves. Uh, You know, the world has changed, it it seems to, every day. Um, and, And I think the speed with which these conversations have shifted first from the pandemic and now into into racial violence protests and now moving into monuments um, and, you know, who knows where we'll be next week. Um, I think historians are really trying to to play catch up, but it's a fantastic position to be in. And, you know, historians have really dug deep and explored these questions of monumentation and commemoration um, over the past, say, 20 years. And so we we have this really rich body of scholarship now that we can interpret. And and I think, you know, most historians looking at, at, at what's happening out on our streets all across the country would agree that 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 this information is out there and that the, 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 these crowds are armed with this knowledge now and 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 um, and really understand the deep histories and the power messages that are encoded in these monuments. And and so that's really gratifying to see. 
uh, I think, for historians to know that that work has found an audience and that 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 audience is is now acting on on that information. Dr. Twitty, how would you respond? Sure. I mean, I I think, you know, there there are many historians out there trained in public history uh, or who work on issues of memory or commemoration, memorialization, who've long known this information, but all of a sudden there's much more of a public appetite um, for this information, I think, than there there has been. And and Patrick is absolutely right. The the conversation seems to be moving so quickly um, as a result of all of the protests that we've seen surrounding police brutality against Black and Brown people. And opinions are changing, I think, really, really quickly, too. So so historians definitely are, uh, I think, excited about this opportunity where our expertise seems to be uh, relevant and in demand um, and, and, and a sense that, you know, we can be helpful and, and help guide this conversation at this particular moment. Um, but again, the conversation moves so fast that that's something that you may have, you know, had, had put in print uh, even a couple of years ago might no longer sort of reflect, I think, where the country is or where the country is, is headed. So, um, it's a fast moving conversation. And, uh, you know, in all my conversations with folks, I try to stress that's okay. It's okay for this conversation to evolve. It's okay for us to change our minds. Um, we all may have taken positions on monuments and, and memorials uh, at one point that we, that we no longer embrace. Change is good. Change is happening all around us. So I, I think we, we need to embrace it rather than uh, reject it or, or try to run away from it. Is there a downside to moving too quickly? Maybe. <laughs> the downside of uh, acting and reacting or removing or um, a tearing down, destroying um, before your thoughts as historians uh, have really uh, laid out the predicate of, of why something should be removed? Well, you're asking historians, and we're famously deliberative. Uh, we, we we move very slowly and, and are used to sort of our own uh, processes and methods. And obviously, I can give a very full-throated defense of those processes and methods. You want to make sure that the history is right. But this, you know, fundamentally isn't a conversation where historians, I think, should be the final voice. We're, we're one voice. I think we're contributing to this conversation. Um, but this is ultimately a public conversation. This is a, a conversation about what American people want, what this generation of Americans um, wants representing them in, in public spaces. And so, you know, I don't think it would be fair, even though I have a sort of background in 19th century American history, even though I know a great deal about the history of, of some of, of these of these monuments for me to pretend as though my opinion is the definitive opinion. So um, while I, I think by my inclination and training, I, I might, I might say yes. Um, I, I ultimately think that, um, like I said before, I, I think we have to sort of embrace change. And I think for historians, I think it's really good to embrace the notion that this is a public conversation and that we're actually having a conversation, not in the ivory tower, not isolated amongst ourselves, but with the general public, um, trying to inform them, but but ultimately knowing that this is a collective decision. Patrick, how how would you respond? 
Yeah, no, I think that's a really wonderful point. And then I would also, you know, add in here that, again, picking up on this idea that that historians have this deliberative process, you know, we we've we've dug up and 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 we've uncovered the stories of the backgrounds of a lot of these monuments over the past few years. Right. Like there, there has been this this call and this controversy and this conversation that's been happening, you know, since since, since Charlottesville, since Charleston. Um, and, and, you know, in all these individual communities where I think we've seen the political decision to remove monuments, um, you know, that decision has been informed a long time ago. It's just now that we, I think we've seen those mayors, city councils, public art boards, whoever's in charge of, of sort of, of supervising those monuments have now sort of felt the time is right to act on the information that they already had. Um, and so I think there, you know, again, historians have kind of had a say here already. And now now this is really handed over to be a, a public conversation and a political conversation in each one of those communities. And everybody has to have that that discussion for their own city and their own governing body, I think. Well, I'd like to uh, offer as many uh, examples as possible. And it would not be possible to name uh, every statue plaque marker in the United States uh, or even in the South, for that matter. But I would like to offer uh, and then get your opinion on some of these. And Patrick, I'm going to start with uh, with Jefferson Davis, uh, who was just recently removed from our rotunda at the state capitol. You're a longtime um, uh, history uh, with the Kentucky Historical Society and your work there, uh, only a block or two from uh, that statue for so long. Of course, it took this moment in time, it, it it took this movement, but could you, if if we knew the, the history of Jefferson Davis and um, studied his life, uh, it doesn't take one long to discover that he did much more than just the Confederacy. There's his time in Washington and uh, uh, with the White House, and there, there, there's a whole other part of his story. But of course, the focus recently has been on uh, his Confederacy. So, if we knew that part of of his life twenty years ago, uh, or since the monument was erected, uh, why wasn't he removed before now? Well, and I mean, that statue in particular for, for probably the past five years has, has been an object of, of discussion and political debate among members of the legislature. I remember when I was at KHS, um, there's a really fantastic project team led by Dr. Mandy Higgins um, there that was researching the specific history of that statue, when it was put up, why it was put up, who funded it, um, who then later put the plaques on that, um, that gave it additional meaning. Um, and all of those sorts of things. And, and that one, is, I think, especially was a, a, a much uh, more recent addition to that rotunda than, than we tend to imagine, right? And, we, and this is important in all of these monument conversations that we really think deeply about. Um, about when these monuments go up and what and for what purpose and those those moments um, in the, the 20th century or the late 19th century uh, are are more important in, in understanding each of those monuments than the person actually being commemorated um, and you know I think one of the the big shifts that that we've seen and that I've seen I, I led a project team that was um, was trying to to do a, a broader interpretation of the the Jeff Davis birthplace site down in Fairview, which is a whole nother kettle of fish. Um, 
And, and, you know, the, the, the existing interpretation that we found there um, that is put out in the, the museum there run by the state park system was this, this argument about, you know, Davis had, had accomplishments before the civil war, but I think you're right. Like the overwhelming um, uh, elephant in the room there is his presidency of the Confederacy. But then we also, you know, when you boil down those achievements and that political career, that military career that he led troops in the Mexican American war, the Senator from Mississippi, but ultimately all of those things that he did before the war are, are in an effort to expand slavery and to, and to gain more territory in the Southwest um, for the expansion of slavery in the cotton market. And so that's, that's inescapable from recognizing, I think a lot of American history projecting that backwards and understanding the motivations for, or why are we looking West in the 1840s? and beyond. So, uh, Anne, from afar, uh, knowing uh, your study and scholarship of, of Jefferson Davis, I'm sure you weren't surprised that uh, he's finally been removed from there. Give me your reflections on, um, on just this one before we broaden our, our look at others. Sure. I mean, obviously, I've lived in Mississippi for the last 10 years, and Jefferson Davis looms large in the state of Mississippi. In fact, he's still represented in Statuary Hall as one of the two statues of Mississippians uh, that Mississippi has sent uh, to 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 the nation's capital. Um, it, it's 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 uh, Jefferson Davis and, and a figure named L.Q.C. Lamar. When we think about these particular monuments, or we think about buildings that are named after particular individuals. I think what's really uh, important to consider is what their sort of singular or most important contribution to American history actually is. Obviously, um, we all do many things over the course of, of long lives, um, and, and sometimes they all kind of pull in, in a singular direction, as, as Patrick is su- suggesting. Jefferson Davis was really invested in the expansion and the perpetuation of slavery, and so a tremendous percentage of his biography is caught up in that one particular um, story. Other figures are, I think, maybe a bit more complicated or more complex, but I think they truly become figures who are ripe for um, the the conversation about whether or not they should have monuments or or buildings named after them, when what we most associate with them is something that we find um, odious and unacceptable today. And so I think, you know, in the case of Jefferson Davis, that seems like me to be an extraordinarily clear-cut case. Um, Jefferson Davis, his, his, his most famous contribution to American history is, is certainly as the president of the Confederate States of America. And I don't think in 2020, uh, there's any place for a sort of celebration of the Confederacy. So, you know, I think there are some cases that are more marginal, are a little bit more difficult. Jefferson Davis really seems like a slam dunk here. Well, I want to um, maybe uh, take your analogy and and go to another figure who's become much more complex uh, during uh, this last month or so, uh, and that's uh, Roosevelt at the National History Museum in New York. But first, before we go there, I can't let somebody from the from Mississippi uh, not be on this program and talk about uh, the flag, not as a monument or a marker, but as a symbol. And again, the same question uh, about Jefferson Davis. Uh, if you can tell us that the the state legislature, uh, I imagine joined by the governor, has now decided to remake the flag to take out the Confederacy symbol. Uh, g- give us your, your thoughts, your background uh, in, in looking at that and um, 
and whether or not that is sort of, um, um, well, just, just tell me about that and, and the debate that's been going on in Mississippi for a uh, hundred plus years. Yeah, it's been a really, really, really long time in coming. Um, obviously, South Carolina removed its uh, state flag, which included a Confederate battle emblem um, after uh, the shootings um, that took place um, there. So Mississippi was the last state in the nation uh, that had a state flag that was explicitly tied um, to the Confederacy that included the stars and bars. Uh, and finally, 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 after years and years and years, decades uh, of, of advocacy on this particular issue, uh, the conversation has shifted. And finally, the state legislature has acted. Um, you know, the people of Mississippi had the opportunity to vote on, on remaking uh, their flag uh, in the early part uh, of this century. Um, and ultimately, that move was defeated. But again, these conversations sometimes I think move relatively slowly and then move very quickly all at once. And, and th that's very much, I think, to me, how this conversation has felt, that the, that the protests, um, especially this summer that were ignited by uh, the murder of George Floyd at the hands of police officers, uh, and then coupled in Mississippi's case with um, threats from uh, the NCAA and from the SEC that there would be penalties if uh, the state flag was not replaced, that essentially Mississippi would no longer be able to host SEC playoff games, which really meant um, baseball. I, I know in the rest of the country, college baseball is maybe not as big a deal, but it is a religion down here in Mississippi. So those those threats were really important. There was a Mississippi State football player who said that he wouldn't play uh, this fall if, if the state flag hadn't been changed. So this has been a long time in coming, um, but again, sometimes these things are, are slowly kind of churning underneath the surface, and then all of a sudden, the lid essentially kind of gets ripped off, and, and that's kind of what it, what it feels like happened here, um, but it, it you know, has taken incredible effort and, and energy to do something that, you know, certainly from my perspective and from the perspective of a lot of other Mississippians should have happened a really, really long time ago. Just like Jefferson Davis, this strikes me as some pretty low hanging fruit. Um, and the fact that we had to put such effort into getting this, this symbol removed, partly it feels hopeful. I know, I know there's a lot of Mississippians who are celebrating today, but it also feels kind of exhausting. If it's going to be that hard to change something like our state flag, how incredibly difficult is it going to be to get rid of the Confederate monuments that are scattered all across the state? So that's, I think, a real question that we're wrestling with here. And there are a number uh, all across the state of Mississippi? Yeah, I think I, I was recently this morning watching a, a short uh, film that was put together uh, by a, a Mississippi filmmaker um, that suggested that there are more than 100 Confederate monuments um, in the state of Mississippi. I, I would believe that it's, it's relatively difficult to get a perfectly accurate count because a small plaque somewhere might count as a Confederate monument and those are, are easy to, to miss. But there's all kinds of counties. I mean, my own county, um, Lafayette County, uh, has a Confederate monument. Um, on its its county square, um, where you know most of the town of Oxford kind of comes together, it's really kind of considered the heart of of the community. And you know there are efforts to get the board of supervisors to take it down right now. There's also a Confederate monument on my university's campus still. So there are a lot of these monuments um, in in all all across the the state of Mississippi. And and so 
it feels like removing the state flag is an incredibly important step, but also kind of the tip of, a, of an iceberg that, that we, I think, know that this battle continues. Patrick, how many uh, didn't have this question written down, but it, it, it sort of begs me to, to ask, uh, how many Confederate markers do you think uh, marker statues uh, monuments remain in Kentucky? Oh God, I, I don't have a good number offhand, but uh, but we're easily pushing a hundred. And and I think more importantly, that and the message to hammer home is the disproportionate number, the extremely disproportionate number of Confederate monuments in what was a loyal Union state. Um, you know, the Union cause in this state is is essentially um, dismissed and forgotten. Um, and and you know very famously Kentucky seceded in 1865 and that's that's entirely a result of you know the the old Henry Clay style um, conservative unionist who went along with the Lincoln administration um, in 1861 and 1862 absolutely turning their back on the union war effort in 1864 and 65 after black men began to be recruited into the union army and the war became a war for slavery and those disaffected um, you know white unionists uh, wanted nothing to do with commemorating the cause that they had fought for and and confederates come back into state politics in 1867 in grand style um, at the head of a democratic resurgence and and really kind of stemming the tide of the republican party which was gaining some support and and you know then the confederate organizations the minority of confederate veterans in this state do really early and active work um, to create a legacy for themselves. They are, they are veterans organizations. They are political organizations. They are in some cases, paramilitary organizations. And after, um, you know, the, they have fully asserted their political control through the 1870s to the 1880s and nineties, they shift into that, in that monumentation phase and, and they do a fantastic job followed up by the next generation of the United Daughters of the Confederacy who are absolute fundraising juggernauts and get those monuments placed in courthouse squares. And I grew up in Trigg County, right? Where, where there was a UDC, um, monument that was put there fairly late, probably in the 1920s, I want to say off the top of my head. Um, and, you know, being in Western Kentucky, those were, those were just, you know, there, there was one in every courthouse square and it was a, a part of life. And, and to be brutally honest, as somebody who sounds like the way I sound, um, I, I've, I, I gloried in that, right? Like I understood that to be part of my heritage and part of my past. Um, and, and it was only, um, in the, the, as I grew up, um, and, and knew black people and, and had conversations with them, uh, about the ways that those monuments and, and, and rebel flag paraphernalia and shirts. And again, as a, as a history obsessed young boy, I, I had my fair share of that stuff on my wall in my bedroom and, uh, and on my back and things like that. And it was only after some really hard conversations that I, I, I sort of saw another side to that. Um, and I feel like we as a society have finally kind of reached that same point um, here now. And, and as much as, as much as white Southerners have built that identity around the Confederacy, we've started to realize that there are other things that, that can make us proud of our communities um, and, and maybe not the legacy of the Confederacy. I want to return just very quickly because this is so fascinating and our time is uh, getting away from me, uh, but, but Roosevelt and only because of the, the, uh, the parallel that you painted there earlier, Anne, uh, in that 
uh, until uh, some of us, uh, amateur uh, historians, uh, looked at Roosevelt and his history uh, of his accomplishments and some uh, faults, uh, but not in a way that is being interpreted now. So can you just tell us a little bit about uh, your thoughts about uh, that statue, which will be removed, and, and, uh, and, and how using that as an example of, of what more can be done, not only to his, his legacy, his, his, his history, but uh, by just taking away those two figures beside him? Yeah, I think right. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt is is a much 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 more complicated figure uh, when it comes to the monuments debate than somebody like uh, Jefferson Davis. Um, you know, on, on the one hand, uh, Teddy Roosevelt uh, invites Booker Washington uh, to to the White House. He he catches a, a tremendous amount of flack for that, and and never invites another black person subsequently. But he does take that one step, and certainly he's a figure. Um, for whom you know our first or initial connection isn't to the confederacy isn't to slavery isn't to really even i think the perpetuation of white supremacy and certainly there's conversations to be had about whether those associations are the right associations but for better or worse in the popular mind and the popular understanding that's not primarily that's not first and foremost who teddy roosevelt i think has been and and what he has represented to us but in that particular case, I mean, it's my understanding, first of all, that some of the Roosevelt descendants have specifically said that they would like to see that particular monument taken down. But in that particular case, right, one of the things that's so objectionable is the way that Roosevelt is represented. Um, and, and that similar problem haunts uh, the Emancipation Monument uh, of Lincoln uh, in Washington, D.C. There's, a, a, I think, a sort of similar conversation that's growing up there where you have uh, a, a statue of Abraham Lincoln, you know, popularly known as the Great Emancipator, um, in a very paternalistic fashion with his hand on the head of uh, a recently enslaved, now freed uh, black man who's kneeling um, essentially at, at Lincoln's feet. And that, that imagery, um, you know, contrasts again with, with what it is that we think about Lincoln and, and what it is that we think about Lincoln's role in, in, in bringing about the end of slavery in the United States. Um, there is a diversity of opinions um, on, on these questions. Uh, the, the famous Yale historian David Blight wrote a, an editorial in the last couple of days basically saying that this particular statue of Lincoln uh, in Washington, D.C. ought to be maintained because Primarily, um, it, it was uh, fundraised for and paid for by Black Americans, um, and and it represented something that you know we ought to think about and and respect. So it, it it raises all of these really interesting questions about how much are these monuments about the actual people um, that 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 are cast in bronze, and how much of these monuments are about. Um, you know, these, these, what was going on at the time and, and the purpose behind putting something like that up. I must also add, though, that Blight, um, the biographer of Frederick Douglass, uh, does point out in the piece uh, what Douglass said about Lincoln and how uh, that was um, stated in such a way that uh, uh, Frederick Douglass, who spoke at the unveiling of the monument, uh, did cer certainly uh, try to... Um, unveil some of the truth um, of Lincoln's 
uh, past, uh, of his questionable past uh, on uh, uh, freeing um, slaves and, uh, and of African-Americans. So it, it just, I, I guess, as we, as we get a little bit closer to our, uh, if, if you have another example of, um, of a controversial figure, I, I have plenty, but, it, but why don't you each just choose one very quickly and, and uh, look at it from the perspective of uh, either removal or of change or of taking it somewhere where more uh, perspective could be given for the, for the general public. Of course, I would think um, you both would, would say museums seem to be the, the perfect place. Am I wrong about that? You know, I thought that that Lexington a few years ago when they removed the the monuments of John C. Breckenridge and John Hunt Morgan out of the courthouse square. And again, we have to remember that the courthouse square is right there on Cheapside, was the, the city's um, very active uh, market for human beings before the Civil War. And the bluegrass is, of course, a, a huge um, exporter of, of people into the cotton fields of the Southwest. Um, so, so when the city decided to remove those and put them up in Lexington Cemetery, I thought that was a, um, a really useful compromise where the statues can still be there. And in fact, be in a Confederate section of the cemetery, um, cemeteries were, were some of the earliest sites of, of Confederate memory and even showing support for the Confederate cause Lexington Cemetery, Cave Hill here in Louisville, um, you know, during the Civil War, um, Confederate supporters came out and decorated Confederate graves as a, as a sign of support. And, and after the Civil War across the South, before, you know, we saw this this trend of putting monuments in courthouse squares, uh, cemetery monuments were the, the place to do that. Uh, museum professionals are, are, I must say, really hesitant to take on these um, these monuments. One, because they're huge. Uh, the, the scale of them is not a thing that uh, you, you You'd be hard pressed to get the thing through the door a lot of times or through the loading dock in the back. Um, and then there are also questions of how um, these statues fit in with existing interpretations and, and things that, that museums might want to do and talk about. You know, uh, the, the putting up of someone on a pedestal might sort of take away attention from a from a. Uh, a museum's collection that talks about everyday life and experience, for example. And then there are also preservation costs. Um, you know, museums, uh, I, I can't think of a museum that I've, I've known uh, staff at who isn't complaining about um, space uh, and, and, you know, room for their ever-growing collection and wanting to be able to continue collecting and tell stories and where are they going to put that? And obviously this is going to suck up uh, a huge amount of, of square footage there. So it's, it's, a, it's a really tough choice. I think the important part is, you know, going forward that, you know, that we really do respect the, the founding documents um, of the country and the ideals upon which we were established, even if we, we can question the motives of some of the, the people who wrote those founding documents and, and not give um, these objectionable monuments uh, a place of honor in our city spaces, in our public spaces, in private spaces like cemeteries. And, and if, if, you know, there's been some talk of Confederate heritage groups taking control of some of these, if they, if they wish to do that and maintain them, then, then uh, by all means, especially because some of those groups had a hand in fundraising. Uh, but I think decentering those out of shared political spaces where all citizens come together and support the upkeep of, that's, that's particularly important. And what uh, give you the last few minutes? 
Sure. Well, I I, I mentioned uh, that that Mississippi's two statues in Statuary Hall included Jefferson Davis and this other figure, L.Q.C. Lamar, who's looms very large in the history of the University of Mississippi. He's very involved um, in, in the early years of the university here. He eventually becomes the only Mississippian to serve on the Supreme Court. And he kind of makes a name for himself despite having authored basically the Articles of Secession for the state of Mississippi, having served in the Confederacy. He makes a name for himself after the war as one of these kind of uh, great reuniters. Um, he gives a famous eulogy at Charles Sumter's funeral and he rises essentially to sort of national prominence. He's a, a white Mississippian that the rest of white America can, can stomach um, in the 1870s and, and, and 80s. Um, and he's rewarded with a plum position um, in, in federal office. He's a complicated uh, figure for lots of reasons. And ultimately, I just think there are so many more Mississippians uh, who do so, so much better of a job of, I think, representing who we are and, and, and who uh, we would like to try to emulate um, than him, right? I mean, so, you know, this, this perennial conversation, you know, but from William Faulkner to... Uh, Fannie Lou Hamer to Elvis Presley, Mississippi has a lot to offer. And the idea that we are represented in new um, leaders of a, a, a secessionist movement that, that, that resulted in the deaths of, of three quarters of a million Americans, um, I would like to say boggles the mind, although in other ways it's, it's entirely with keeping with, with what it is that we know. But I think these are really thorny questions about what we do with some of these objects. And I will say one of the other problems is that a lot of these Confederate monuments are not works of art. They were basically mass produced. There's no artistic content or quality. They were quite expensive because of the materials that they were made out of. But in terms of the actual objects, they're basically identical. So the idea that some museum, some poor museum is going to be saddled with, you know, virtually uh, 50, 75, 100 almost identical monuments, unless you're going to do some kind of artistic reinterpretation uh, of these, these objects, that's an incredible burden. And yet a lot of state legislatures like Mississippi have passed these laws that basically say you can't get rid of these things. You can only relocate. And so when your hands are tied in that particular way, this conversation about, well, when maybe we can put them in museums or maybe we can put them in cemeteries or maybe we can just give them back to the UDC or the Sons of Confederate Veterans. That's, I think, part of why it's a practical solution to a problem that legislators have created for all kinds of county governments at this point. Well, that's uh, fascinating. For some reason, uh, though, I just can't fathom Elvis Presley in uh, Statuary Hall in the United States Capitol. I just, I, I can't quite go there yet. Um, but to both of you, thank you very much. It, it's a conversation that I know we uh, will continue, and uh, it, it is just really beginning. And uh, I know you're right at, um, at this moment uh, that uh, so much attention is going to be uh, paid to you uh, and to these uh, monuments. And I will look uh, very closely at uh, what what happens? I, I think this time the debate and the conversation will go on. So thank you, uh, Patrick Lewis and Ann Twitty for joining us. Uh, and uh, we will, uh, uh, again, to all of our listeners, uh, promise that we'll continue to follow what's going on in Kentucky and in Mississippi and uh, let you know. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah. 
Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 48 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.